Hi, Nat. Hi, Sam. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing well. I just got back. Oh my God. Can you hear them? The yes. My dog's barking. Absolutely. <laughs> Never <laughs> be okay. quiet when I need it. Um, I just got back from Big Sur camping. How was it? it was Tell me all about it. So much fun. We went and- because Sean's dog is getting really old my partner yeah. and so yeah. we were like let's do one last camping trip with her and it was actually yep. really fun that's awesome I did see in a text photo that I was sent that Sam has the most unreal sunburn I think oh, I've ever seen on somebody's body before <laughs> I can't even I like went to I was like getting ready for bed and I didn't realize I was sunburned. Like I was kind of itchy and like, I kind of like felt something weird, but I have like really sensitive skin anyway. So I was like, eh, it's probably just like dry or whatever. No, yeah. it was like the color of, well, okay. It was red, but like, I can't, <laughs> but I was like a lobster. You looked, yeah. I was just going to say the SpongeBob character, just picture the lobster, the big yeah. buff guy. Yeah. I, I can't remember asleep. his name. I fell asleep for apparently what was like, way longer than I thought yeah um, so that's great and now it looks like I'm constantly wearing a bathing suit because I it's just uh, the color is a stark difference it's so funny the picture uh, it was like uh oh my gosh what's what's that called shock factor it just like I saw it and I was like oh my god yeah and I don't what really get happened? burnt usually like I but it is just disgusting it is a not disgusting. So it's like, just, it's very unfortunate and I'm sure it's painful. Yeah, not too. It's like not as painful as I thought it might be, but okay. Hanging in there. Well, that's good. Alrighty. Yeah. Well, today we're actually going to be talking about something that's even more red than Sam's body. Oh my God. That was dun, dun, dun. That was so good. <laughs> we're talking about oh. redlining guys. Yep. <laughs> Dang. I could not Actually, have come up with that. You're like, a I comedian. really, I really am. I'm so funny, but I need to really preface that I do not mean to make a joke out of redlining because it's really not funny. No, um, it is absolutely but not. But that was, funny. it was a great segue. Yeah. <laughs> I was wondering why you brought my sunburn up and I feel like it was all a ploy so that you could say that joke. I feel like you had already. Absolutely felt- not. Absolutely not. It was funny enough. I did not think about that, but I was thinking about Larry the lobster and then it just made me think red. And then there was just an association. Yeah, that's fair. Sam, um, I think of things on the spot because I'm no, just, I'm witty. so intelligent and funny. Yeah. <laughs> that was actually really good. I was not expecting that. I was like, red, like what are you talking about? <laughs> hey, welcome to Urban Planning is Not Boring. I'm Sam. And I'm not. Um, but before we jump into that, we have an exciting announcement. Yes, we do. Very exciting. I'm so thrilled. Yeah. This is something that we kind of thought of while we were like envisioning what the podcast would be. Yeah. Something that we really wanted to do both so that we can like enrich our knowledge and become even more smart than we already are. And so that other people can like feel more engaged with the podcast and learn and expand upon what we talk about in our like short mini little episodes. Yeah. So yeah, Sam and I, Sam and I were really just hoping that 
you know, if you're listening to the podcast and you hear a topic that we're discussing and you're really interested in learning more about that, we just want to provide you with opportunities to find books that can really meet those needs, you know, for you to really explore your interest in these topics. So, um, Sam and I are going to be starting a book club. I'm actually so excited. Can I get a round of applause? Um, so book club is just going to be essentially Sam and I are going to pick a book and we've already picked the book. So I'll let Sam do that announcement, but we are going to be picking a book approximately every month and a half. And we're going to be reading that book through, but every two weeks we are going to do book club where we sit down and we're going to basically discuss the book, discuss the topics that we've you know read about, kind of just do a deep dive. And then that way for those who maybe don't have the time or maybe missed, you know, a chapter can listen to the podcast and can get basically a debrief of what the book has been discussing. And it also gives us the opportunity to highlight and amplify really important voices. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to let Sam introduce our first book of book club. Yes. So for the first one, we wanted to go with something that was, you know, a pretty popular book and um, one that's, you know, very well known in the field and just like a wealth of information. And so we're starting with The Color of Law, A Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America by Richard Rothstein. Um, It is available like pretty much probably most places that you would buy books like. um, Yeah. So it should be pretty accessible. It's relatively affordable on Amazon. Mm -hmm. Um, They have a Kindle and a paperback version. And so we really want to encourage you all to grab the book. You can definitely get it from a library as well. Um, Sam, you told me about Libby, right? Libby. So if you have a library card, one of my absolute favorite things to do, and if you have a Kindle, Fun fact, you can get free ebooks onto your Kindle through the library. So if you have a library card, you can download the app called Libby, L-I-B-B-Y, and you can um, check out either audiobooks or ebooks from your library. And then you can transfer the ebook to like a Kindle or an iPad or any like tablet device. And then you can listen to the audiobook on um, your phone. And it's a really, really, really cool service that a lot of people don't know about when they think of libraries. Obviously, they think of physical books, but you can get them for free. There might be a wait um, because it's like limited amount of copies, but it is really cool. And it's my favorite thing. Yep. So gatekeeping um, here. yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So Sam had mentioned Libby to me. I think it's a great resource. So I'm glad we got to offer that up for those that are not familiar with Libby. Um, so yeah, that is the introduction of our book club. I'm really excited. We, Sam and I both already have color of law. Mm-hmm. And so we thought that this would just be a great opportunity for us to really deep dive and start reading it. Yeah. So the first episode that, um, we will be releasing will be August 22nd. Mm-hmm. And by that time we will have read the first four chapters, four chapters. So if you want to follow along by um, August 22nd, read the first four chapters of Color of Law. Yes. And we really look forward to talking about it. We wanted to say if you have comments, 
questions, anything, feel free to DM on Instagram, email us. Um, I'll put our email and our Instagram in the show notes and we would love to hear like your thoughts, any questions that you might have, um, like literally anything that comes to mind, we would Mm -hmm. love to hear it and we will talk about that in the episode. Yeah. Yeah. We'll either, if you have comments, we'll read them and then discuss if you have questions, we can answer them on the pod. So just send us just anything you want while you're reading. Yeah. All righty. Well, let's get into the episode. (laughs) So as we mentioned last week, we're doing a follow-up of zoning. Yes. Um, This one will be more focused on like a brief history of zoning and then getting into topics like exclusionary zoning, redlining, and kind of why we should be reforming the zoning code as it is currently. And so I will just first dive into a brief history. So last week we mentioned um, Euclid versus Ambler Realty, which is kind of the beginning of like this modern day style of zoning that we have today. But the first zoning ordinance was actually established in New York City in 1916. And that divided the city into three classes of districts, one being residents, Uh, the second being business districts, and then the third being unrestricted districts. And that's kind of like, I know that this is definitely not like a comprehensive uh, history of zoning. Like there's a lot that goes into it, but um, we kind of wanted to save um, time to talk about kind of like these bigger issues, like exclusionary zoning, redlining and zoning reform. and so, nah, I don't know if you just want to dive into it. Um, yeah. Yeah. All right. So as Sam said, there was the first instance or case in which we saw zoning begin to be established in the United States. Um, but then there were two major things that happened that are, you know, involved zoning or were explicitly zoning ordinances. Um, And so the first one was exclusionary zoning. And the definition, according to Merriam-Webster's dictionary, is that exclusionary zoning was a residential zoning plan whose requirements, such as minimum lot size or house size, had the effect of excluding low-income residents. And I was listening to this video um, It was, I believe, by NPR, and there was an economist that essentially kind of broke down why exclusionary zoning was excluding low-income residents. And so the way he explained it was, just imagine a 4,000-square-foot single-family home, and single-family homes, we all know, are far more expensive than multifamily dwelling units such as apartment complexes, condos, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So you have a 4,000 square foot single family home and you know that it's far more expensive than that same home being subdivided into four 1,000 square foot units, which is why single family housing and the zoning for areas exclusively for single family housing Mm -hmm. cannot be the only way to build housing and also excludes certain income groups. Because we all know that the more expensive the housing, 
the less people will be able to afford it. Mm -hmm. And so you're excluding those income groups from that housing. So this is where exclusionary zoning comes in. And I mean, the beginning of exclusionary zoning was pretty much at the start of zoning itself and just the way people began planning for neighborhoods and housing. Mm -hmm. But you really saw exclusionary zoning come forward when we had the development of suburbs and single family neighborhoods and suburban communities. Mm -hmm. And so Sam, if you have anything else you want to add or talk about. Yeah. I was just going to flag this tweet that abundant housing um, put out. I think it's, it's from another article. Um, I don't, I don't have in front of me where it's from like the original source, but it says ever tightening zoning regulations have choked off housing options for countless middle-class families, townhouses, duplexes, and small apartment buildings are widely banned, including on 75% of residential land in Los Angeles and 94% in San Jose, both very large, very populous cities in California. And I feel like that is just absolutely crazy that a majority of the residential land in these big like metropolitan areas is uh, single family home zoned or just not a, like uh, multifamily homes are not allowed in right. those areas. It's just like crazy to me. Yeah. And Again, we're going to jump into the discussion of redlining very shortly, Um, but one aspect of redlining is exclusionary zoning and something known as covenants, where you had these suburban communities, they're brand new, but they were made, created exclusively for white middle-class families or white wealthy families. And so there were things such as covenants, which were used to prohibit uh, homeowners of in these suburban communities from selling their houses to people of color. Yeah. And we can now see that the makeup of single family neighborhoods is very reflective of that history and that past. Mm-hmm. So exclusionary zoning Although, yes, of course, it's completely illegal now and covenants are still completely illegal. That does not mean that that history has been completely erased and there have been, you know, significant changes made or there have been, you know, that we have righted the wrongs of the past. We actually still witness a lot of, you know, challenges today. And so um, we also want to dive into the topic of redlining. And the history of redlining, which is also associated with zoning. Yeah. Um, so, Sam, if you want to go ahead and define that. Yeah. So, redlining um, means to withhold home loan funds or insurance from neighborhoods considered poor economic risks. And so, yes, you know, in this dictionary definition of redlining, it does not explicitly say low income people of color or just people of color, but at the end of the day, the people who were unable to get loans or were unable to have insurance were, I would say, almost 100% people of color and low-income folks. And so it really disproportionately affects like certain communities, for sure. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, there were 
in fact, very explicit instances in which race was a factor. And so I'll kind of do a, a deep dive into the history of redlining and essentially explain how that term even came to be, yeah. what that means, et cetera. So uh, I just want to preface all the information that I'm going to be discussing came from NPR's podcast. Okay. Um, I'm going to have Sam just tag it in the show notes. It's a really great video. You can just watch it. They have a lot of great images. They also include some interviews with uh, folks in cities like Baltimore um, and Chicago. So I'll have Sam put that in the show notes uh, when we post this video, but just wanted to give credit where it's due. So in the wake of the Great Depression, President Eisenhower was attempting to provide economic relief to Americans. And so this is where he introduced the New Deal. And that included the National Housing Act of 1934. And what the National Housing Act did was provided things like a 30-year mortgage and very low interest rates and also fixed interest rates. And so what this did was provided low-income folks with an opportunity to purchase a home. but the caveat was lenders need to make sure that even if you're low income and you want to buy a house, you're not going to default on your mortgage because at the end of the day, lending practices, it's involved, you know, it involves money. And so, you know, banks and lenders want to make sure that you're going to make your payment every month. And so this is when the homeowners loan corporation was created. And so this organization, basically, um, they created these things called residential security maps. And so even though research that's been done throughout history has found that these maps were not a good indication as to whether or not people would default on their mortgages, at the time, this is the practice that they were they were um, doing. And so they created these maps known as the residential security maps. And this is where the term redlining comes from. So these maps, you can find them online. Um, Sam and I are going to post photos of them, but you can find them online anywhere you'd like. Mm -hmm. And you're going to just see four colors and they're going to be essentially marking shapes throughout the maps of different areas. And they're coded through these colors. And so um, you had four colors and I'll just go ahead and list them and what they meant. So green meant that it was the absolute best area and had the best people. And the job classification was usually that these were businessmen who were living in these areas and their families. Then you had the blue area, which meant that they were good people and most likely were white collar families. Then you had yellow, which meant it was a declining area with working class families. And then you had red, which meant it was hazardous and often or mostly contained foreign-born people, low-class whites. And in the terms of the time in which redlining and these kinds of residential security maps were created, they used the term the presence of Negroes. So one of the most consistent criteria for red zone neighborhoods was the presence of people of color. And I'm not saying this as like, maybe it was backdoor talk. I'm saying there are literal documents mm -hmm. in which when these areas were being assessed, it would say inhabitants, and then it would put foreign born and the individual would write yes or no, Negroes, 
and the individual would write yes or no. And this is how they determined whether the city amongst, there were other criteria, but this was one of the main criteria for red line communities was the presence of people of color. And so we're also, I will find those documents so we can show you guys because they're literally horrific to actually see that this was something we did um, in history. And so what redlining essentially did was it made it extremely difficult to either buy or refinance your home if you were in a redlined area. And so in these redlined areas, there were landlords would end up fleeing. Then due to that, there would be declining services like buses or investments into schools. And then the property values would drop. And so you would see declining property values all throughout redlined areas, redlined neighborhoods. And that continued for 30 years, during which you had white flight happen, where white middle-class families fled to these new suburbs that were being built, which is where Sam and I were discussing exclusionary zoning. This is where we, we first saw exclusionary zoning. And also the covenants that were introduced to exclude back, Black families from buying homes in white single-family neighborhoods. And I just want to stop there, Sam, if you want to discuss anything, and then we can keep going if you'd like, if you don't have anything else to talk about, but I did want to just take a pause. Um, yeah, I was just thinking about Manhattan Beach mm -hmm. in LA and how that was like completely redlined and there was like no people of color, no black people were allowed to live in Manhattan Beach for a really long time. Yeah. And um, I was just reading these letters to the editor um, in the LA Times about generational wealth, which I know we're going to talk about yeah. further, um, but how white people who live there are, you know, able to sell their house for much more than what they bought it for, if their parents bought it or grandparents, and yeah. how like black families were just completely closed off from even absolutely so absolutely that's just kind of what I was thinking of as you're talking but we're gonna get into yeah. that yeah well then that's a great segue just to discuss the fact that this didn't simply go away when exclusionary zoning and covenants and redlining became illegal yeah because we have to remember that housing and the infrastructure that's very permanent you know, mm -hmm. we didn't all of a sudden say, oh, okay, well now redlining and exclusionary zoning, it's illegal. So now we have to tear down everything we've built and we have to start all over. That didn't happen. Yeah. So basically we made the laws illegal, but the damage had already been done and we still see housing segregation and its effects today. Mm -hmm. So there are three major categories in which I'm going to talk about where we can see the just devastating effects of what redlining did uh, in our country. And you will find this all across the country. Um, you don't have to take my word for it. You just read about it. It's absolutely insane. Yeah. So first major category was the impacts on wealth. Um, and I actually shouldn't say was, they are the impacts on wealth. Mm -hmm. So one of the biggest ways to create wealth, and this is literally what we're taught as little kids, I'll never forget, just everybody always talks about, you always talked about, 
I just can't wait to have my own house. I can't wait to, you know, start on my own and just be independent and, and live in my nice big house with my white picket fence. Maybe some people have a different idea of what they want their house to look like, but this is essentially the American dream is home ownership. And that's one big aspect of the American dream. So you create wealth through home ownership. And the barriers to home ownership for people of color made the accumulation of wealth almost insignificant compared to that of white families. And I say that because when you have redlining happening for 30 years and laws associated with zoning that were exclusionary, when you have those happening for 38 years or 30 years, sorry you obviously have to understand there's a significant setback for people of color. Yeah. So 98% of FHA loans were for white borrowers for the first 30 years. So while white families were able to gain equity in their homes and move on and build their wealth more, either by selling their home and taking the equity from that or keeping their home and then selling when they had significant equity or passing it on to their children who then got that wealth and equity, they were at a significant advantage and people of color did not have that same start. Yeah. So you have 30 years to accumulate your wealth. And for a person of color, they're starting at zero when you've already got equity in your home. Yeah. So this was one really significant and is one really significant impact on wealth and the accumulation of generational wealth and things related to homeownership and money, equity, et cetera. Absolutely. And that number of 98% is just startling. Yeah, it is. And I just think, you know, it's just really insane even today how we are still seeing implicit bias and racism Mm -hmm. in a lot of things like lending practices or even home appraisals. Yeah. And I'll never forget, I was listening to a podcast about, um, she's a financial advisor and she was talking about how her and her husband were selling their home and they had the appraiser come in, Mm -hmm. did the appraisal and it came out really low. She was very surprised Mm -hmm. that her home was appraised for so little because her and her husband had bought the home, but they also renovated it. And of course she wasn't expecting that she was going to get everything back that she made in renovations, but she was really startled that it was like quite low. She wasn't really expecting. So then what they did was her and her husband got another appraiser to come, except this time they took all of their family photos out of the house and she's a black woman. Okay. She's a black woman and her husband is also black. And so they took all of their photos out of the house. And instead she had her friend who was white stay in the house and let the appraiser in. And what they found afterwards was that they got a higher appraisal for their home. And this is where she was just absolutely shocked in the sense that she didn't actually think that that was still possible today, but she wasn't surprised. Mm -hmm. And hearing that there is absolutely no denying that history continues to play a part, whether it be in urban planning or our personal implicit bias as human yeah, beings. Absolutely. And 
that has significant detrimental impacts to people of color. And again, when you're already starting off on a, you know, with a disadvantage, Mm -hmm. there is such a, you are really fighting to, to just have a chance and you're just simply being beaten down every single time. And so, you know, it's not to say that there's no opportunity, but it's far more challenging for mm-hmm. that opportunity to, mm-hmm. to be acquired for people of color, yeah. especially when it comes to housing. Yeah. So the second aspect is education. So basically, if you are a homeowner, you would know that the primary funding source for schools are through property taxes. Mm-hmm. So depending on your home's value, you know, that's going to determine how much money you're going to pay in property taxes. And that's going to determine now how well-funded your schools are. Mm -hmm. So high home values lead to more property taxes and better funded schools. Mm -hmm. Redlining created not only low property values, but also low quality schools since they received the lack of funding compared to other single family neighborhoods that were in either green or blue districts. Mm -hmm. So then the cycle becomes that better schools equal homes that are worth more and higher property values equal more money for schools. Mm -hmm. And then it becomes that constant cycle. Mm -hmm. And one thing I can say is obviously we can witness that. Mm -hmm. It's quite simple to see, you know, higher quality schools and lower quality schools. And actually one thing that we'll constantly hear from people is, oh, I'm just, you know, we really want to pick the right place to live. And one of our biggest factors is that it has good schools and a good, it's in a good school district. Mm -hmm. So where do we think that came from? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, clearly not all schools are equal. Yeah. Not all teaching staff is equal and not all resources are equal for schools. So that's a, a really significant issue because you have children who are lower income. Mm -hmm. Their parents don't make that much. And if they do own their home, the home has very low property value. Maybe it's not in the greatest neighborhood. And so what ends up happening is that child has to go to the school within their district. So they end up going and it's maybe not the best quality school. And so if that child is struggling or you know, maybe just needs extra help or maybe they're doing good, but there's simply not enough resources for that child. Mm -hmm. They can't excel in the same way that someone who's living in a wealthier community would Mm -hmm. as their child who would have the even better resources and more support. Yeah. And more access. Yeah, exactly. So Sam and I also did a, (laughs) for our Sam, uh, what Boeing's class. Oh, uh, data and communication for the public good. Yes. That one, the best, Mm -hmm. except I couldn't remember it. I'm so sorry. Um, so Sam and I took that class and for our group project, we analyzed tree equity. Mm -hmm. And then in another class that I was taking at the same, uh, during the same semester, I used the tree equity data that we got from, the the data analysis that we did Mm -hmm. and I used that and I took these kind of basically I printed out the Los Angeles's formerly redlined map and I started gluing down basically trees throughout the map and I did it based on a legend 
And so I use the tree equity scores to figure out how many trees would get placed, you know, and then I would overlay it onto that map. And what I found was that in formerly redlined areas on the map, mm-hmm. they had the lower tree equity score, mm-hmm. meaning that there were simply less trees planted. Yeah. Lots of people can, you know, uh, someone made the argument when I was talking to them about it, they said, oh, well, you know, a lot of the formerly red line districts are in like downtown Los Angeles. So like how would, you know, maybe that's just because it's a lot of concrete, it's downtown, like there's not a lot of trees. What's the excuse? Yeah. Cause there's concrete. That doesn't yeah. make any sense. That doesn't mean anything. Yeah. So it really does go to show that the way in which we have planned for housing and the the history of redlining has Mm -hmm. significant impacts in a lot of different ways. Yeah. And so then the final kind of um, topic that was discussed was the impacts on health that we see today. And so due to the past planning practices like redlining, People of color are more likely now to live near industrial plants, to live farther away from fresh food grocery stores, or to live in places where the water is not drinkable or not safe for drinking. Mm -hmm. And so these neighborhoods are also often, not always, but often with crumbling infrastructure and infrastructure that's so outdated and has not been redeveloped or renovated that some of these buildings even still have toxic paint on their walls and people are still living in homes that have toxic paint on their walls. Mm -hmm. And so this has led to studies that have showed that people of color have higher incidences of certain cancers, asthma, and heart disease. Mm -hmm. So The three implications, just to summarize, are that there are implications that we see today that include our wealth, our education, and our health. Mm -hmm. And there is a disproportionate negative impact on people of color due to the history of redlining. Absolutely. And it's interesting because when I was in high school, um, we had to, we took a class, um, like an ethics course. Mm-hmm. Cause I went to a religious high school. And so that was like a religion course. And right. so, you know, we, we talked about a lot of different things and I'll say we were in a very progressive area of San, like in San Francisco. And so the ethics wasn't like what you might think of when you think of like a Catholic school, like it wasn't right. abortion is murder, like blah, blah. Like we talked about things from multiple angles, like stem cell research and just like a bunch of kind of random justice and equity issues, but we talked about environmental justice and that was kind mm-hmm. of like my intro to like environmentalism and equity. And we yeah. talked about Flint, Michigan yep. and how, you know, there's a water crisis. And at the time it was what, 2016. And I, I was just, so. yeah, I was like shocked because I feel like, you know, you hear a lot of people like, oh, we need to get clean water to Africa. We need to get clean water to South America. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you realize that we literally have these issues in our own country as well. Like, yeah, it's great if you want to like start this big water infrastructure project in Africa. I'm not saying that that's like not a worthy cause, but like right. we also need to pay attention to the issues that we have here. Absolutely. And why a place like Flint, Michigan, like in the middle of like this big automobile automobile industry and like this, you know, 
why we have those problems there yeah not in you know other parts of the country and it was just like really eye-opening and that was like kind of my intro into like all of what I do now and it's just insane to me that these these things are still happening yeah I mean I think what's even more frustrating for me is when I'm talking to someone and I'm explaining how, you know, we have a country that was literally founded on racism Mm -hmm. and sexism. Mm -hmm. And to try to argue that it in no way exists today is just completely ignorant and quite arrogant to just be so flippant and say, oh no, racism doesn't exist today. And uh, I remember I was talking to, this was very sad actually. Um, I was talking to, I play poker and we were playing a poker game and there were these three guys, older guys in their sixties. And they are school teachers. So um, they teach in, I think, San Bernardino County somewhere. And they're telling me, oh, so you're in urban planning. Like, what what do you do? And I said, oh, like we, you know, I mean, there's a lot of different things that we look at, but Mm -hmm. one of my emphasis is housing and real estate development and transportation. Mm -hmm. And one of them made the comment like, oh, so like freeways and and housing development. And I was like, yes, freeways. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, sure. Freeways. And, Mm -hmm. um, he was like, oh, so, you know, you're aware of like the history of freeways. Right. And I was like, yeah, I am aware of them. And he was like, oh, okay. Cause like, that's what we teach. And I, I asked, I said, do you also teach about how the freeways segregated communities? Yeah. And he was like completely destroyed community. Yeah, exactly. And he goes, what do you mean? And he was like, oh, hey, so freeways are racist. Where does, he, where does he teach? What grades? It's high school. That's so interesting. Yeah. So he teaches high school history. Gotcha. Okay. And I, <laughs> this is really like, it was really shocking talking yeah. to him, but he just goes, oh, so freeways are racist. And I was like, well, obviously freeways themselves aren't racist because they're concrete. They're inanimate. Yeah. They actually don't like live or hold opinions. Yeah. Um, but the planners who decided and determined where the freeways were going to go had racist intentions behind that. Mm -hmm. And Sam and I, I like Sam and I watched this video today where Pete Buttigieg had mentioned the reason why the term on the wrong side of the tracks exists is because there's clearly a good side and a bad side of the tracks or yeah. the freeway. Mm-hmm. And so we can kind of deduce why that phrase exists. Yeah. Um, but anyways, so, you know, he just like went off and he got very upset. 
Mm-hmm. And he was like, that is just the stupidest thing I've ever heard. How could you say that, you know, um, that freeways are racist or that housing is racist. And I was like, I'm so sorry. I don't think that's what I'm saying at all, but I it's not translating. Yeah. It was just not working. But then he said, oh, well then, you know, I can just debunk your argument right now. And I was like, okay, go ahead. Like what's, what's going on. Yeah. And he was like, well, it's historical. It happened in the past. The, he said, are there still laws today that are racist? And I was like, well, what do you mean? And he was like, well, you know, like redlining, you're talking about redlining, like is redlining legal today? And I said, no, it's not legal today. And he was like, well, what about exclusionary zoning or, you know, covenants and stuff? Uh, Is that legal today? I said, no. And he was like, well, exactly. So if they're not legal today, that means that there, there's nothing else to discuss. Like it's over. And I just thought, I'm really sad that you're teaching this to children or that you're not teaching. Actually, maybe I'm glad like that you aren't teaching it. Yeah. Cause then you don't have to spew your stupid opinion. Um, but I just really, it was a hard time, like talking to him about it. And I was trying to be respectful, yeah. you know, he's an older gentleman. I just wanted to, you know, just kind of try to explain it the best I could from my yeah. perspective. Um, and he just kept interrupting me typical mm-hmm. and was just like, no, like, that's just the stupidest thing I've ever heard X, Y, Z. Um, and he then of course uses like the same argument that I feel every white man uses and is like, I know tons of people of color that own their homes and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay. I mean, yeah, of course that's, that's fine. But that doesn't mean that because of your personal experience as one person out of the 7 billion people on earth means that we just get to say, oh, you know what? Because so-and-so knows five people that own their homes and they're people of color, then obviously racism must not exist in planning. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it was a very interesting, horrifying, scary conversation. It made me want to cry. It was actually really sad because I really couldn't believe that like, that was the argument that he was making as to why, you know, racism can't exist. Mm -hmm. Um, but I did, I did tell him, I was like, okay, so, you know, we have laws that don't exist anymore. And I understand that, but can't you understand that the freeway is still in the same place it was Mm -hmm. 60 years ago? Mm -hmm. Can you still understand that there are homes that you'll find. You can just go on Zillow right now and start scrolling and find the year in which the house was built. And some of them were, are still up that were built in the 1930s and forties. This infrastructure doesn't go away. It doesn't stop existing. So when you have predominantly white neighborhoods that were able to get zoned into green districts that were highly attainable, Mm -hmm. you have now increased the property value of that area. Mm -hmm. You have those white folks that are living there reaping those benefits. And that is going to disproportionately impact somebody who is a person of color living in a formerly red red line district where their property value is much lower and you've excluded them from ever having the possible possible chance. I mean, it, it is possible, but very, very rare or unlikely that they would be able a severe yeah, disadvantage. It is. It's a severe disadvantage 
that that person in a formerly redlined neighborhood is going to be able to move into another neighborhood that was formerly green lined or green zoned, however you want to say it. So he was just like, he, he just, again, he was like, the laws don't exist anymore. So blah, blah, blah. But I knew he couldn't argue that because you cannot argue that we still have the same infrastructure and it's still divided communities, you know, the same way that it did 30, 40 years ago, because Mm -hmm. it never changed. We didn't reroute freeways. Yeah. We didn't tear down all the homes. Yeah. They're still there. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that's something where in our field, I really have a hard time. You know, sometimes I just want to scream at people, like just stop denying this, the existence of racism and in planning and policy and in our country um, and start acknowledging it. But I think a lot of people feel that way. I think a lot of people think that same way mm-hmm. that, oh, well, it's in the past. The past is in the past. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, so is abortion uh, rights. Th- those were, you know, there was what's it called? Sorry. 50 years of precedence. Yeah. And uh, that just went all the way away. So <laughs> all the let's, way. let's let's stop saying that, you know, the past is the past. Clearly yeah. it isn't. And I think we need to start acknowledging that. Yeah. Really quick before I pivot to to zoning reform. Yeah, uh, I don't know if you saw, but Kansas actually just voted to uphold abortion rights. Yes, absolutely. I did see that. Really, really cool. And I'm yeah. so happy. Yes, I it was funny. My friend and I were yesterday, we were just sitting down outside and she was telling me like, oh, Kansas is trying to um, just as you said, sorry, my words are, are uphold abortion rights. Yep. Thanks. I, something's going on with my brain. Um, but anyways, so I asked her, I was like, oh, I wonder if Arkansas is, Arkansas. you know, this, yeah, Arkansas. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm wondering if, you know, that's similar. And she was like, no, no, I doubt it. So she looked it up and sure enough, uh, abortion is, is illegal in Arkansas. Yeah. Arkansas so, is like a very conservative state. Yes, it is. And I had no doubt, but it was just very interesting that Kansas took such a different approach because I didn't really expect that from mm-hmm. Kansas, mm-hmm. but I also just like, I don't well, know, you know all the policies across the states. majority of Americans want abortion to be legal. Yeah. It's 80%, about. right? Yeah. So I wouldn't, 80%. you know, it's not, it's not that shocking to me that states would vote this way. Um, just given that staggering number so i mean i don't know though because this is again like where like concentrations of people well yeah you have concentrations of people and you also have the fact that there was a presidential election not too long ago in which the popular vote was one way and the election went the other so i i don't know i mean obviously i know what you're saying because it's shocking like 80 percent, and all of a sudden the constitution (laughs) is Never mind. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I just it was it was a bit surprising to me. I don't know, maybe because oh, yeah. I just think of Kansas as like <laughs> not the state that would do something yes. like that. Oh, I totally get that. But maybe that's my own just like lack of understanding of Kansas. So I've never been there. So okay, so we'll take an urban planning is not boring <laughs> field trip and we'll go to Kansas. Kansas. <laughs> um, so I think that we should pivot a bit to zoning reform. Um, I don't want this episode to be too, too long. 
So obviously after these two conversations that we've had the last, you know, two weeks, uh, it's obvious that zoning should, I think, definitely be reformed. Absolutely. Uh, there's like huge argument for this. And so a lot of what is discussed in terms of zoning reform is being able to upzone areas. Is that upzone or is it? Yeah. Where you can have more. Oh, yes. More mixed density. Up zoning areas so that you can have more multifamily houses, more apartments, more missing middle housing, just taking areas that were formerly exclusionary and just single family homes and allowing those areas to have, you know, a, a multitude of housing. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, that's, that's a really big part of what's brought up with zoning reform. And I think another big thing is, you know, as we talked about last week in terms of transit oriented development, mm-hmm. allowing more density in those areas, reducing parking requirements in those areas to accommodate yeah. for, you know, more units or just, um, not having to give us much land space to parking since they are yeah. transit, yep. um, and so, and we talked a little bit about SB9 and how that can start to make some, some changes to zoning, although it might not be as um, significant. significant as we might think it will be. But I would say just increasing density, increasing height are huge in terms of zoning yeah. reform and housing. Absolutely. Yeah. The reform has to be met with incentives. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, even transit-oriented development, it's not just that, you know, if it's by transit, you get more density, but it's also a host of other incentives for people to take advantage of. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, please, let's fix it because I just, I live in the suburbs. I live around single-family houses, and there's actually a plot of land right by my house where I just thought, a lovely fourplex or duplex, like how great could this be? Yeah. And it's just, you know, non-existent over here. So it doesn't need to be a 50 story, like all the Karens, don't worry. We don't want to put a 50 story building next to your lovely single family home. Yeah. We just want to start expanding the missing middle housing options mm-hmm. and provide just diversity and variety because we do need to start diversifying our neighborhoods and providing folks with more opportunity to Mm -hmm. enter into those neighborhoods. And you and I have talked about, and we've learned about this in class, income mixing is significant for the social impact that it has on folks. You know, just talking about folks that live in in mixed income housing, where you have wealthier individuals living with maybe lower income folks, but when they're meeting and talking with each other, that can have significant social impacts. Mm-hmm. The networking that's provided for those people, especially if it's children, children are like little sponges. Mm-hmm. If they're around, you know, wealthier folks, little they, sponges. <laughs> they really are. And if they're around you know, wealthier people who feel that they have a sense of connection and, and community and responsibility for those kids and can maybe take them on and help in, in some way. I mean, it does have very significant impacts. There's a lot of research that goes behind that. So we do need to start having mixed communities. Uh, and I mean that in terms of housing typology. So it's just, it's an absolute need. Yeah, absolutely. Um, is there anything else that you want to touch on in terms of reforming? I mean, I think that there probably is. I just focused on housing because that was kind of 
the direction that this episode went in. Of course. Um, yeah. So I really, you know, in terms of just reform, it can't simply be that we introduce a bunch of policies and say that, okay, like we've done, we've done what we needed and we're all good. It has to be met with, there needs to be resources, discussion. It needs to get it put back on the table. There needs to be an evaluation about the effectiveness and efficiencies of these policies. You know, SB9 is going to need a severe evaluation in the next few years to see like, is this actually having the impact that we hope it's having? If it's not, then there needs to come you know, the, the discussion of, okay, what are we going to do to fix it and and make it right Mm -hmm. um, or make it better? Yeah. So yeah, I think that one thing I learned as a policy major was you kind of look for, I would say it's like four major things, which is effectiveness, efficiency, equity, and feasibility. And you want to make sure that your policy basically meets the criteria under those four broad categories. Mm -hmm. And if it doesn't, then you know that your policy is most likely not going to be great. And that often you'll have to go back to the drawing board to improve it. Mm -hmm. I think that's something that we should look at with the policies that are already in existence. Maybe instead of coming up with new policies, we should start looking at the ones we already have and reform those and fix them. Because Honestly, that's far easier, I think, than having to write a brand new policy. I think reform can actually be very beneficial. So I think that's definitely something I would add in terms of zoning reform. Yeah. And I think just to wrap up, I feel like this should go without saying, but when we're talking about, you know, an influx of resources and support and infrastructure, there needs to be a focus and a priority on formerly redlined neighborhoods. Um, Absolutely. Obviously, you know, ending, ending single family zoning for lack of a better term is really, really important and Mm -hmm. needs to, you know, I think needs to happen to allow for, you know, middle housing and, and really dense housing, but we need to focus on uplifting areas that have been kind of deprived of resources with, without, and this is the hard part, I think, is without gentrifying the area and with making yeah. sure that people who have been living there can afford to stay there. I don't know if that's, Absolutely. Where, you know, like capping rents uh, yeah. or, you know, I, I'm not an expert, so I don't know how, what that looks like. But I think that is just should be the priority. Um, Absolutely. These kinds of investments. I also think, too, it's just, you know. we need to start holding the state more accountable for what our money is going towards as tax-paying citizens. Um, Yeah. I don't know where my taxes go and I get, I don't even make that much money. And I'm like, how are they taking so much? But I just like, one thing that I was thinking of just right now was like, I remember when it came out, I just read this like article. It was like, oh, we've got like the, one of the largest, like budget surpluses the state of California has had like in a while we had a huge surplus in our budget and I thought okay so you know what's where is it going to go what's going to happen to it and then I heard nothing like saw nothing I mean I'm sure I could look it up and there there there's going to be some discussion but imagine (laughs) if uh we possibly use that um money to go and 
provide more funding for lower income communities schooling. Or if we really start thinking about where we can provide more resources to, as you said, formerly redlined communities mm -hmm. that could benefit, obviously at the end of the day, we can't tear the houses down and start all over. And we've said this so many times, unfortunately that can't happen, but there are small things that you can do that can make a significant impact. And I think really one of the big things is focusing on the education of children. Mm -hmm. So I think that there's a lot of ways that we can make a difference, but unfortunately we're urban planners. Policy really is where we, we can start to actually see different impacts being made urban planning of course like infrastructure and uh, development and things like that of course we can make the, that difference but it will also come from policy it's got to be both so so i'm reading this i don't i really don't want this episode to be too long but i'm reading this article published uh -huh. in june of 2022 and it says okay Basically, how big is California's historic budget visualized? So it gives the budget of $300 billion. Our, yeah. It doesn't go, it says the surplus is $97 billion, with a B, billion. Yeah, yes. And so it goes into, okay, so we have a $300 billion budget. Mm -hmm. But how do you put that into perspective? Because it's just like, for me, those numbers are so high, it's not real. Yeah, like, I don't right. know how to comprehend. <laughs> and yeah. so it says a $7,500 vacation for everyone in California um, 6.2 million Tesla Model 3s. <laughs> I don't know. Three times the estimated cost of the high-speed rail. So basically with our surplus, we could fund the high-speed rail. Yeah. <laughs> what I'm hearing. Um, two times the federal student loan debt for California students. Mm -hmm. So why isn't it going away? I want to know. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I don't, I still don't know what the surplus is going towards, but that is, cr oh, the California budget pays for lots of different priorities. How would you rank? Oh, I see. So it's asking you to, it, it like gives you the opportunity to rank what you would want um, the budget to pay for. Like, oh, okay. Least, but it okay. doesn't really say anything about what they go to. Yeah, I'm still like, I need to figure out, like you said, 97 billion. Um, that's insane. Yeah. Anyways, um, <laughs> I'm sure that I know for a fact, I'm, you know, I'm 100% certain that this could change so many things. Yeah. And it's just like really shocking how I don't really think that many of us even really ever consider like what is the state of California spending our money on you know it's yeah, it, yeah. I don't know it's very very interesting it's really in nuanced and insane but yeah it's just change must come Thank you so much for listening. We really hope that you enjoyed this episode of Urban Planning is Not Boring. If you did, please remember to send us to your friends and follow us uh, wherever you get your podcasts. And remember guys, urban planning is not boring. No, it is not.